This morning we continue our study in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, at least the first recorded letter in Scripture. Today, Lord willing, we will conclude the chapter. We'll be focusing on verses 25 through 40. Uh, It's found on page 956 in the Pew Bibles that are provided for you there in the rows. And again, this is a a lengthy and specific focused uh, passage of Scripture, as as you'll see as we work through this. Um, And so my approach is going to be a little bit different today. We're going to spend a lot of time on the front end, uh, focusing on the first half of, of the passage uh, and then the second two points, uh, I want to bring out a couple of things, and then I want to close by focusing on application for us as a body. So um, just understand the flow might go a little bit differently than normal, or, or maybe it'll be exactly the same. We'll see. First Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no commandment from the Lord... But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not, be, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live live as though they had none, and let those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as those who had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided attention to the Lord, devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, And it has to be, let him do it as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Let us pray together. Lord, be glorified today. Be glorified through the preaching and the receiving of your word be 
glorified as we close in song, be glorified in Sunday school, be glorified uh, through the women's event today, be glorified in our homes this evening and throughout the rest of our lives, we pray. Lord, I, I pray for your help in preaching this lengthy yet important passage well. Help us, Lord, to keep in mind its context. Help us, Lord, to apply it well. Help, use it, Lord, to weaken the world's grip on our hearts and our understanding, Lord, that we would love the things of God even more. Help me, Lord, physically and, and mentally in this moment of need, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, one of the beauties of the Bible is that through the inspired authors, God speaks to our real-life situations. And, and because there is nothing new under the sun, counsel given to the Bible's original audiences, the Corinthians in this case, it is just as important and authoritative to us today as it was back when Paul penned these words. The Bible truly is living and active because the Spirit of God who inspired it is at work in our hearts and our minds as we read it, as we listen to it proclaimed, even as we preach it. He's at work in our hearts and our minds, giving us understanding, convicting us of sin and righteousness, bringing us comfort and encouragement. You know, interestingly enough, at some point in every place I've ever served in some form of teaching ministry, whether it be pastor or youth pastor or a, or a volunteer or a Sunday school teacher, I, I've been asked or, or, or challenged because of my stance and my approach to preaching the Bible. Why do you primarily do it? expositionally why do you why do you work through the bible verse by verse when when i did youth ministry a parent once said to me well my daughter goes to a christian school and hears the bible all week long isn't there something else you can teach them during youth group no <laughs> that that was the answer no <laughs> many pastors who I know, who, who also have this approach, this expositional approach, are asked why they don't do more topical messages where they focus on the hot issues of the day. And really the answer, in addition to, to no to the, to the parent and to the person who may wonder why preaching the whole counsel of God is, is important, is, is that we need all of God's word. We, we don't just need the parts that we think we need or, or, or that we think we want. We, we need it all. That, that brings to mind a, a pretty funny cartoon that I saw recently. Some of you have seen this before. There's the, the pastor here that looks like they're at a Bible study. The question, why do we study the book of Numbers? 36 chapters of, of self-centered people who whined every time they didn't get their way. Give us something relevant. Can you see the irony? 
Now, don't worry, none of this opening rant is in response to anything that has been said to me by any of you. There's no hidden agenda in that regard. But but the image and the stories actually capture a common attitude towards God's word. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand it, and we need to understand it in context. Today, we we conclude our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and and we've seen so far, if you've been with us, that, that Paul has dealt with marriage, sexual intimacy within marriage, singleness, divorce, contentment, and, and now he wraps it all up by applying these truths with advice that is given primarily to singles within the church of Corinth. He's, he's taking his, his general teaching on, on marriage, singleness, divorce, contentment, and now he is, as he wraps up this chapter, zeroing in on their present circumstances. This is how it applies. Now, if you're visiting with us, or are, are you have missed a couple of Sundays, remember, we are in the section of 1 Corinthians where Paul is responding to questions that he has been given in in, in the form of a letter from the church in Corinth. So chapter 7, he is dealing with a specific issue, questions that were raised by the Corinthians. In two weeks, when we move into chapter 8, we're going to see that he's dealing with another question that was raised. And so, as we flow through this, understand that that this is Paul's response. In our passage this morning, we, we find Paul preparing the church to be faithful under trial. He, 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 he's trying to help them develop the right attitude concerning good gifts that God has given as life was about to get, and had been, challenging. He wants them to view marriage and and singleness differently because of all that they were enduring. Broken the passage up under three headings this morning. The first one is the problem. What, what, What was going on in Corinth? Verses 25 through 31. Paul writes, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. You almost have strains of, of what we heard two weeks ago, right? Paul's message on contentment. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealing with it. For the present form 
of this world is passing away. Now perhaps you wonder where I get the word trials from in, in saying that Paul is writing to prepare them to be faithful under specific circumstances. Well, hopefully as I reread the passage, you heard some key words that, that may have clued you in that there is more going on in Corinth than maybe we were first aware of. Now, archaeological discoveries reveal that, that the city of Corinth faced multiple famines during the time in which Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. There are also ancient writings that, that reference earthquakes, which also took place during this time as well. And as you read the, the Gospels and some of the teaching of Jesus, you, you, you hear things like earthquakes and famines mentioned in terms and reference to the end times, do we not? We, we talk about the end times often here as a church, or the last days, as, as the Bible uses that phrase. No one knows when Jesus is going to return, but we understand the last days to mean that period of time between when Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection and the time he's going to descend in his second coming. So we are literally living in those last days. That's our understanding of that period. And so this, the reality of earthquakes and famines and floods and all these things happening, that they exist to give us a, a greater sense of that urgency. And, and it's possible that as Paul writes these words, he's looking at some of these events and he's reminding the Corinthians of the urgency of the situation. Now we also know that about 10 years later, the Emperor Nero came into power. Now that might be a common name for, for some of you, but, but if you've never heard the name Nero before, he was one of the most brutal emperors in terms of how he treated Christians. He tortured and killed countless believers. He had Christians dipped in wax and then lit on fire to light his royal gardens. Not a nice guy. And even without such overt and deadly persecution, we know from studying Scripture that Christians in ancient times were often rejected and faced financial losses because of their faith in Christ. See, Paul doesn't point out exactly what he's referencing here, but we know enough about Bible history and we know enough about life in this world to understand that as followers of Christ difficulties arise. Now, for the Corinthians, it was specific and strong, and we know from history that it would get worse for them. But Paul doesn't say specifically what he's referencing. Clearly, they knew, and the application that we can take away is that these attitudes, this approach to understanding Persecution and trials in this life are, 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 is an attitude that we would do well to be mindful of ourselves. As Paul writes this last section of chapter 7, he is doing so focus, focused on specific circumstances that the Christians in Corinth were facing. Why, why, why am I taking so much time to give you context? Just tell what it means for me. Well, you need to know what it meant then. 
And that's going to tell you what it means for you because it means the same thing then as it does now. It may apply differently, but the meaning does not change. We can learn much from this passage even though we're not facing persecution like they did back then. We, we, we must be on guard, however, against reading this passage in a way that it was not attended. We, it would be very easy for us since we do work through passages verse by verse, and, and it's been a month almost since we were in the first half of chapter 7, to come away, or if you're visiting with us and missed the first half of chapter 7, to come away with an unbiblical view of marriage and singleness, right? If, if you just read this passage, it would be easy to think, you know what, well, marriage isn't so great after all. Singleness is better. After all, Paul says so, right? But what did he say back at the beginning of chapter 7? They're both gifts from God with advantages and disadvantages that are, uh, the disadvantages that are, that are subject to each. And so I'm working hard to, to, to give you an understanding of, 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 of what Paul was writing to so that you can appreciate where he goes in light of this present distress, these present difficulties. The time grows short, he says. If, if we ignore context, we, we, we could look at verses 25 through 31 and, and adopt the, the attitude that marriage is a hindrance to faithfulness. After all, doesn't Paul say that, that, that the married are, are to live as though they have no spouse and, and that marriage is the cause of worldly troubles, verses 28 and 29? Earlier, Paul says it's a good thing, it's a gift. Did he change his mind? Well, we know better than that, right? Keep in mind the context. What's Paul doing? He's responding to questions and issues that were raised. Earlier in chapter 7, he, he makes it clear that their understanding of marriage and singleness was wrong. And so he writes to correct. He's Helping them see that sexual intimacy within marriage is good. Singleness is good. Marriage is good. Remember, they were considering using the culture's practice of, of ramp, rampant divorce and then wrapping that up in a spiritual little bow saying, I'm divorcing my wife or my husband so that I can be more faithful in following the Lord. Paul says, no! It's not right! trying to spiritualize sin. It, it even sounds spiritual to, to oh, well, I'm, I'm leaving this earthly institution to be more devoted to the Lord. It sounds spiritual until you take into account that they are willing to destroy God's institution of marriage. God ordained that. So, so the first half of chapter 7 could be really considered corrective in how we read it. He's correcting a, a faulty view. Marriage and singleness are still gifts from God in verses 25 through 40. But in light of the trials they were facing and would be facing, Paul calls them to live strategically in order to be able to persevere. 
And, and I trust this will actually become even more clear as we work through the passage. In equipping the Corinthians to live faithfully in the face of trials, Paul first points out that there is a problem which challenged their faithfulness. We see this in verses 25 through 28. He says, Now concerning, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Now, that phrase concerning the betrothed, you may have a translation that used the word virgins instead. But it's clear from the context that Paul is writing to those who were in relationships that were similar to what we would refer to as engagement today. Though it was, could be argued that the commitment back then was much greater. It was almost like being married with the absence of sexual intimacy and the living together. The betrothed were on the road to marriage. They were committed completely to their future spouse. Paul continues, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. Now, we encountered similar wording earlier in chapter 7 where Paul is differentiating between commands from the Lord and his own commands. And then we also learn that, that when Paul utters a command from the Lord, he's simply quoting something that we can find in the Gospels. He's not revealing some new knowledge that God appeared to me and, and this is what Jesus said. Now he does that later in reference to the Lord's Supper. But, but here he, he's quoting Jesus when he says that in chapter 7. We also learn that, that, that Paul's commands are also authoritative, but he makes the differentiation for the sake of clarity. Now, in verse 25, Paul's statement on having no command from the Lord simply means that Jesus did not address this, this concept of Gentile betrothal in his earthly ministry. Keep that in mind. Paul continues, But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, the Greek word translated judgment in verse 25 is, is the word nome, which means to, to basically hold a view or an opinion or an attitude that is based on or grounded in knowledge. So, so as Paul is continuing, he, he's giving them his judgment based on how he understands God's word and their situation. He says, I'm, I'm giving my judgment as one who is by God's grace proven trustworthy. I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So he's saying, listen, your situation, your present distress, based on what I know as an apostle and a teacher in the church, this is what I think is wise for you to do. Now we see in verse 28 that he's not giving a specific command because he goes on to say that those who are betrothed but then get married are not sinning. If it was a, if it was a command, it would be a sin for them to not marry. So, so what's he saying here? I, I really think the best understanding of these verses is, is that Paul is speaking to Corinthians about what would be most prudent in light of their present circumstances. He's, he's given them advice on, on how they would be wise to, to what that would be wise to do given what they are facing. And, and although Paul doesn't explicitly name the type of trials they were facing, it's, it's obvious that they were significant in nature. Listen to verses 29 through 31. 
This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Clearly, something's going on here. Now, I don't know about you, but, but reading it without considering the, the, the statements about their present circumstances, it makes Paul's advice sound pretty radical, does it not? Especially given our present level of comfort here in America. What do you mean? Deal with the world as if I don't deal with the world and, and buy as if I, I had nothing and, 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 and to live even though I'm married like I'm not married. What do I do with that? We, we, we don't face those levels of trials. But these verses really do communicate the seriousness of real persecution and the importance of remaining faithful under trial. It's one thing we can take away from this as we read Paul's advice to the Corinthians. When it comes to persecution, we must be prepared. You're not going to slip and fall into godliness when your world is crashing down around you. We have to be established and built up in our faith so that when those times come, we're able to live in a way that glorifies God even as our faith is under fire. Brothers and sisters, Paul lived and ministered with eyes focused firmly on one of two outcomes in his life. His death in faithful service to Christ or the return of Jesus. There, there was no other option in Paul's understanding of life and ministry. And so he, as he writes and, 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 and ministers to churches that, that too are facing persecution, he is doing all that he can to, to better equip them to stay faithful under trial. The persecution that, that the early church faced meant that following Jesus came at a cost. You, you, you didn't just go to church like they did in America. If word got out that you were a part of, uh, of the cult of Jesus, and that's how a lot of communities viewed them, then you could lose your livelihood. People wouldn't do business with you anymore. Some cultures, if you read the book of Hebrews, they were being thrown in jail for no good reason, and, and, and those who associated with them were having their possessions taken away. Now, how bold would we be in our witness or, and our attendance if that was a reality, it's going on around the world today. But we would have a different attitude if we knew that when we opened that door following the service, the cops might be waiting outside to take us in. And, and so it's a, it, there, there's a weight here that we should both learn to appreciate and understand because... It could happen. And it's a weight also that should cause us to be compassionate towards our brothers and sisters around the world who live this way day in and day out. We, we don't tend to, to think about this. But I think that we should. 
Brothers and sisters, comfort can be as much an idol as a totem pole or money or pleasure. The the, the Corinthians were not immune to that. I'm sure the easy road appealed to them. We have already seen in other ways that the world was influencing their understanding of what it meant to be Christians. So Paul counsels them to reorder their lives in such a way that that prepares them to be able to stand up under trial. The world as they knew it was literally about to change. And I wonder how we would respond if the world around us suddenly became violently hostile to our faith. The problem for the Corinthians was that the trials were already upon them. And they needed to learn to be content and to prepare themselves to be faithful. And this really leads to the the principle behind Paul's teaching, verses 32 through 35. Paul continues, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Do you see that? I'm not writing to make this harder on you. I want to set you free. To stand up under trial. His advice for single people to remain single in light of their present circumstances is rooted in one simple principle. Freedom from marital responsibilities meant freedom to be faithful to the Lord more faithfully under trial. Remember, Paul's already made it clear that marriage is a gift from God and and married people can serve God faithfully as well. But but the very nature of marriage means that a husband and a wife have obligations to one another. And and this is really what Paul describes in verses 33 and 34. It says the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. In the second half of verse 34, he says the same thing about wives. The, The married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now understand, as we hear the word worldly as Christians, as we read the Bible, that that it's often used in in different ways. One of the common ways that you hear me use it is is to talk about the effects of sin on the world. When I say someone is is worldly in their attitude or worldly in their actions, it's, it's not a compliment And there's evidence of of the world's influence on their understanding, their actions. When I warn you against worldliness, that's what I have in mind. That's not what Paul has in mind here. We, We have to read these statements with the end of verse 31 in mind, where he writes, For the present form of this world is passing away. The Greek word translated world in these verses is cosmos which is used to describe the created order that God has set forth in the world. A a helpful way to understand worldly in this sense is to think in terms of temporary things. Paul's already said the time is drawing near, growing short. So Paul's saying, in essence, 
The married man is anxious about temporary things. How to please his wife. The, the, the married woman is anxious about temporary things. How to please her husband. He's not saying worldly as in sinful, but the very nature of the relationship with one another involves a focus, prioritizing one another, does it not? We saw this at the beginning of chapter 7 and as it related to sexual intimacy within the marriage. Paul laid it out clearly. The husband doesn't have authority over his own body. The wife does. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Don't deprive one another, except for maybe for a time to fast and pray. And then come back together so you're not tempted. That's, that's priority. <laughs> and there are obviously other ways, right, that, that we prioritize one another. Think about it from, from the terms of, uh, of even if Paul is simply writing with the famines in mind. Maybe the, the persecution hasn't ramped up yet. But what's, what's the focus of a husband going to be in a situation like that? How can I ensure that I'm providing for what my wife needs? It's going to be a focus. And that devotion and that need and that good calling that he would have to, to be able to care for and protect and provide for his wife and family in that situation would necessitate that there would be a level of, of, of focus that he could not give to the Lord in that, even though it could be argued that under God he is trying to be faithful. But that would cause him to be anxious about temporary things, would it not? And so the point here is simple. In light of their present circumstances, there, there were aspects of the marriages that would serve actually as a, as a hindrance to faithfulness because it would cause anxiety, concern, worry that singleness would not in their situations. Does that make sense? The point is simple. Paul's goal here is that he wants the single people and the widows in the church in Corinth to understand one simple principle. That in light of their present circumstances, rather than focus on an institution that will pass away, there is only one marriage in heaven, and that is the marriage between Jesus and us, his bride, in light of, of, of what they were going through, focus your efforts on your true husband, singles. In light of your present circumstances, focus your efforts, your devotion on your true husband. Married people, we would do well to be reminded yet again that as much as we love our spouses... And as much as we are called to be faithful, and we are, that this is just for a time. When we stand before the Lord in glory, it will not be as husband and wife, but as brothers and sisters and as the bride of Jesus Christ. So again, the counsel to singles is that they devote their attention and devotion to the one to whom they will be married to whom they will be married forever rather than pursuing the temporary gift of earthly marriage as they face these trials
He sums this up in verse 35. He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's his goal. I I want you to be single-minded in focus. Paul's saying, follow my example. Live in light of one of two realities. You're going to die faithfully in service to the Lord or Jesus is going to come back and both are gain. So Paul continues in, in verses 36 through 40 with his prescription to the church. It says, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. On verse 36, we basically find Paul reiterating his warning from verse 9. It is better to marry than burn with passion. For the engaged in the church... It's understandable that as the day to get married draws near, the desire for the physical union grows stronger as well. And rather than have that desire turn into sinful lust and and behave inappropriately, Paul counsels couples to go ahead and get married. It's better to marry than to sin sexually. Again, marriage is a gift, not a sin. And on the flip side of that, Paul encourages those with self-control to remain unmarried in light of their present circumstances, for they will be in a better position to stand up under trial. As he's wrapping up this section, he's, he, he's simply laying it out there. This is how I think you can best persevere. He's not minimizing the commitment of marriage. He's made it clear throughout this chapter uh, of the calling and the commitment that believers have to one another in this institution of marriage. And he closes by, by, by pointing them to that reality. Remember, this whole chapter is, is written in response to, to, to the questions the Corinthians had about sexual intimacy, marriage, and divorce. And after writing glowingly and extensively on on the virtues of singleness, Paul adds verse 39 as a reminder that that singleness is no longer an option for those who are already married. Unless, verse 15, the the unbeliever leaves. Committed until they are widowed. And the widow that does remarry must marry another believer. So, so it's not a belittling of marriage. It's an equipping of the body to stand up under trial. Now again, these are, are trials that we have yet to truly experience. Not that we don't go through trials, but most of the difficulties we face 
with a few exceptions, don't really revolve around our faith at this point in our history, does it? No, we, we, we face illness. We face the, the loss of those that we love. Sometimes people are mean to us because of what we believe. Sometimes we are mistreated in our workplace because of what we believe. But nobody's quite ready to dip us in wax and light us on fire just yet. Thank God. So, so what can we do with this passage other than hold marriage to a high position as Christians? Certainly that, but, but I have three applications for us Christians who live in less perilous times. The first one is simple. We must repent of our love, our love of comfort, and learn to daily pursue faithfulness in our relationship with Christ. Let's face it, technology has made us soft physically and spiritually. We've become content with all the wrong things. Being entertained, having what we want, keeping our bellies full, while neglecting the things that truly satisfy and are good for our souls. Last week I was speaking with a man whom I had earlier challenged to make daily Bible reading a habit. Now that's not news, I, I challenge many people in that regard. But this particular gentleman has a lot working against him. He has the reading comprehension ability of, of, of about a third grader, in his words. He, he can only take in a few phrases at a time. So this really could have been an easy excuse for him to give up, right? But you know what he said to me after working on it for only a few days? He said, you know, it really is a small thing to, to take 15 minutes to half an hour every day and try to understand a verse or a phrase from a verse. It's a small thing in light of a 24-hour day for me to, to prioritize this for my spiritual good. As a pastor, my spirit, it, it leapt. He doesn't even go to our church, but I was like, there's hope. He gets it. It really is a small thing to devote a half an hour of your day to grow in God's Word. He is absolutely right. I was rejoicing and even convicted about my own attitude at times about daily devotions. It's a struggle. It's a struggle, but... We're not being dipped in wax and lit on fire. We're not facing a famine. A struggle for us is our Wi-Fi doesn't work. I still have hard copies. And I know you all do. So we must recognize, brothers and sisters, the importance that falls on every person who names the name of Christ to prioritize our relationship with Christ. Number one. Number two, whether married or single, we must learn to live and think in a way that prioritizes the glory of our eternal husband. For, for married people, one of the ways we glorify God is, is through how we relate to and love one another as husband and wife, and, and how we care for our children if we have them. 
This will mean that, that sometimes we will miss out on some ministry opportunities and service opportunities that, that, that our single brothers and sisters have the freedom to engage in. But at the same time, and hear me on this because I don't think we have any problem with that. Yeah, I can, I can skip this ministry or I can skip this service opportunity because i got to care for my family. And that's right. But it's not a get-out-of-faithfulness-free card. So hear me out. I offer this challenge to the married and those with families. There are plenty of opportunities with which you can and should serve the Lord. Doing so will cause for wise planning and even sacrifice of the things that we might want to do instead. But we should be on the lookout as couples and as parents for opportunities to serve others and show them the love of Christ. Personally, one of the highlights of the church calendar for me is our quarterly food bank workday, which unfortunately was canceled last week because of the cold. But if you ever show up for that, you've seen this. We have adults and children who can be there who aren't in school working together, serving those in need. It is beautiful. It is three hours, once every three months. And the kids are, are, are zipping around with their little grocery carts, getting the food that, 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 that people have asked him to go and find in the, in the different aisles. And they, they're loving it. They're loving it. They're smiling. They're, they're speaking to, to total strangers who come in to, to, to receive the food. It's, it's beautiful. It's a small opportunity that is shaping their understanding of what it means to be faithful in serving the Lord. We, we need to pray for wisdom and for opportunities to, to teach our families the importance of, of prioritizing God's agenda over our own. Now, if you're single, don't waste this season of your life. You, too, pray for opportunities to serve the Lord wherever he may place you. The grass is not greener for married people. It's just a different kind of grass. God has you where you are for a reason. So serve for his glory with joy. And finally, and I hope in light of the day that is before us, that you will listen even more closely to my final application. Brothers and sisters, we must never forget that sexual immorality hinders our Christian walk and it weakens our testimony before God and man. There must not even be a hint, a hint of sexual immorality in our lives. This means that we must guard ourselves and our loved ones against those things which cause them to devalue God's call to sexual purity. This is one of the areas where Christians compromise the most. And, and I don't necessarily mean physically, but that is true, unfortunately, as well. But mentally and emotionally, as the standards in society have been lowered for what is acceptable on, on, on media and TV, 
so also have Christians lowered their standards as well. Our love for entertainment often causes us to to fail to examine the content of what entertains us, especially those things that can damage our souls. Should we take delight in forms of entertainment that glorify the things that Jesus died to redeem us from? Now listen, we all love a, a good story and exciting movies, but we must exercise wisdom and discernment concerning what we feed ourselves and also how much we consume. It is a matter of conscience, but we must be sure that our consciences are being informed informed and directed by the work of the Holy Spirit and God's Holy Word. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but I hear that there's some kind of sporting event going on tonight. And so let me lovingly exhort you to be on guard against not just the various images that you will see, but the messages that will be communicated to you as well. It's not just sexual purity where we're tempted, but we're also tempted to leave a biblical worldview as well. And some of the most heart-stirring and tear-jerking commercials you will see tonight will suddenly have something in it, in many cases, that is a direct attack on what the Bible says to be true. How are we going to approach that? I'm not prescribing monasticism or, or boycotting the game, but you cannot, you cannot consume these things with your brain switched off. It does not work that way. And as men and women who, by virtue of being here this morning, claim to value the authority and the sufficiency of God's word in your lives, then even plain reason would demand that we view this world through our biblical glasses, not our fleshly ones. So be on guard, brothers and sisters, not just tonight, but every day. If you you see a commercial that's not overtly offensive that you need to shield your children's eyes from, you need to turn that off. But if there's a worldview or or there's a biblical truth that's being challenged, then, then, then turn it off and talk about it. Help your children learn to reason biblically. We're never going to get out of the world until Jesus comes back. Or we die. Again, both wins. (laughs) But we have to equip our children to stand up under trial. Paul did not hate marriage. He loved faithfulness. And and it was his view that the way to stay faithful under trial in those circumstances were for the single to remain single for the glory of God. That's radical to us. But what steps must we take to be faithful to the glory of God in our context? If you have not ever thought about that, I challenge you to to take the rest of the day to wrestle with that. Because again, 
We, we say we want to grow. We, we want to be godly. We want to honor God with how we live. We want to understand God's word more. We want to be faithful to him. Why? Not because it earns us God's love or God's favor, but because he has lavished, poured out his love on us through Christ who died and rose again to restore us to God. In gratitude, we want to know him, we want to honor him, we want to love him. We want to love others because that's proof that we love him. But we don't get there by accident. You don't get there even by warming a seat on Sunday morning. We get there by prioritizing our Christian growth. Let's do that as his church, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Lord, help us, I pray, to be faithful in our walk with you. Lord, help us to value the things that you call good while rejecting those things you call us to. Uh, Lord, I know personally that there are ways I am more influenced by the world than I am even aware of. And I pray that you would continually, through the work of your spirit, open my eyes to the truth, Lord, that I could repent of those things that are that are worldly in the bad way and embrace faithfulness to you. And I pray this for my brothers and sisters as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing and worship the Lord.